Welcome to the Finsbury Podcast. I'm your host, Chris G, Head of Digital Strategy at Finsbury. And together, we will tackle the biggest issues affecting corporate reputation and communications. Deal-making has been going virtual for a good period of time. Are buyers going to want to get out of deals? And are they going to uh, claim material adverse uh, change, MAC clause out? Boards aren't going to be able to buy back their stocks the way they did before or increase their dividends or uh, sell the company as easily as they were six months ago. This episode, Finsbury partner and head of the capital markets and transactions practice, Cal Goldberg, is joined by Frank Aquila, partner and global head of M&A at Sullivan and Cromwell, to discuss the state of the deal market in the face of the COVID-19 crisis. The following conversation was recorded during a webinar earlier this month. Thank you, and good morning to everyone. Thank you all for joining us on today's webcast. We're going to be talking about the impact of COVID-19 on M&A. There's a lot out there on the topic we know, and a lot of what's out there has been driven by the journalists that are in attendance on this morning's call, but it does seem there are new developments every day. And so this morning is intended as a forum to update everybody on the latest and greatest on how the M&A world is navigating the COVID crisis. Uh, As for our format, we're going to start off with a few questions for Frank, and then we're going to open it up for reporter questions over the line. We're honored this morning to have as our guest Frank Aquila. Frank is the global head of Sullivan and Cromwell's mergers and acquisitions practice. I don't think he needs an extensive introduction to the folks on the call or to anyone who's covered M&A really over the last 30 years. But in addition to advising on many of the biggest deals across a range of industries, Frank's practice also covers shareholder activism and corporate governance. And we're going to try and cover some of that space as well today. So Frank is joining us today safely from a remote location in Florida. So good morning, Frank, and thank you very much for agreeing to do this with us. Good morning, Cal. Good to be talking with you. So before we get into the market trends kind of portion of the discussion, we wanted to just kind of note, and I I think everyone's sort of in the same boat to this effect, that this week, by the end of this week for most people, Um, This is going to be the first full month of everybody working remotely and trying to uh, advise clients and cover deals and and do all that stuff from their respective home offices. And just as a a purely practical matter, as an M&A practitioner, what's been your personal experience or, or big takeaways over the past month of having done all this entirely remotely? I think one thing is that you know, even uh, Luddites like myself, who aren't necessarily that technically savvy, uh, have learned very quickly that uh, you can do an awful lot uh, virtually and that uh, the technology is a lot easier than uh, than we think. In, in reality, though, uh, you know, deal-making has been going virtual for a good period of time. I think that we started having uh, virtual data rooms and have gone away from having you know, physical data rooms where everybody had to fly in and you had you know, one or two or three days uh, assigned to you for the data room for due diligence. Uh, people have gone to a more virtual process. Uh, I used to get phone calls saying, 
oh, you know, such and such, you know, CEO is in town. We know his private jet is uh, over at Teterboro. You know, what what must he be up to? And you sort of investigate it and you find that he's over at Goldman Sachs. You know, these days when you get that sort of tip off, you know, it, it usually means that, uh, uh, you know, she's uh, scored a uh, a reservation at Don Angie and has tickets to Hades Town rather than if she's in town for uh, a deal. So I, I do think that deal making is becoming more virtual. Uh, I think most of you know I represented Tiffany's in the deal to, uh, you know, when they were acquired by LVMH. And Howard Ellen at Scadden, who I know for many years, uh, he and I uh, negotiated that deal. And that entire weekend, we were not together uh, at all and actually ran into him about 10 days later uh, because we were seated next to each other at a restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. And otherwise, I wouldn't have uh, seen him uh, at all. So uh, dealmaking has become virtual. And I think that this is sort of uh, sealing it. There'll certainly be uh, a need for in-person meetings between CEOs and whatever, but uh, more and more deals are becoming virtual, and I think this is pushing us over the precipice towards uh, virtual deal-making. Even insofar as this has all been moving remotely anyway, are, are there any other aspects that you've seen in, in executing and negotiation that, that you think might change uh, purely out of this from working remotely, for example, board of directors meetings and things of that nature? You know, board meetings, you know, obviously boards, you know, have been able to meet telephonically for some period of time. And, uh, you know, often in deals, you will uh, have a certain number of board meetings that are telephonic. We we like to have one or more in-person board meetings. I think we're going to continue to want to have at least one full in-person board meeting. It changes well. I mean, we may go to having, uh, you know, Zoom board meetings to uh, go through uh, uh, the, you know, the banker's board deck and things of that sort. Uh, I don't know if we're there quite yet, but you know, that may be an outgrowth of this, particularly if we're, uh, you know, forced to uh, socially distance for some period of time. In, in turning to more of the sort of state of the market, your sort of kind of recent commentary, you, you've, you've seemed to be dividing the world into deals that were announced prior to the big onset of COVID and then deals that are that were in negotiation or are in negotiation uh, over that same period of time. What is the latest from your perspective on the outlook for the announced deals prior to COVID and how they are um, moving to complete closing conditions and things of that nature sort of from where we are today? You know, obviously not every deal that gets signed and announced gets closed. We all know that. There's a certain percentage that don't get closed and for a whole variety of uh, different reasons. And certainly uh, there are some deals out there that, you know, were signed and announced a few months ago that won't get closed. But by and large, most deals will, in fact, uh, get done. I think some of the challenges, of course, are that 
you know, the regulatory approval process is going to move more slowly. It's going to move more slowly for a couple of different reasons. One is the regulators are operating more slowly. They're operating remotely. So it's going to take them longer to uh, get uh, uh, through the approval process. To the extent that you have a second request on Hearth's God or you have a second phase two in in the European process or, or equivalent elsewhere, it's going to take longer for the parties and their counsel to uh, you know, uh, comply with those requests because they're working remotely. So it, it's going to be a longer process. Uh, I think that uh, you know the big concern is are buyers going to want to get out of deals and are they going to uh, claim material adverse uh, change, MAC clause outs? We saw a lot of that in, in 2008 after the uh, Lehman uh, bankruptcy and the courts were very, very clear. In order to claim a, uh, a MAC, you, you have to show that it's materially negative to the company and that it's something that is particular to the company, not just to the global economy, that it's something that's permanent, not just cyclical. And uh, you know, obviously every contract's written you know, slightly differently, but you know, it's, it's, it's particular to the company, particular to that situation, and that it's a permanent change. And in the entire 2008, 2009 situation, uh, we didn't find uh, one deal that failed because of a material adverse change uh, clause. Uh, there was a case in Georgia where they claimed it was material adverse change, and the court ultimately said you didn't have to close, but it was because the material adverse change that they allege actually disclosed fraud in the inducement, which, you know, was sort of a technical argument, but that was one small case in Georgia. But so I don't think we're going to see MAC clause outs. We are going to see other situations where parties are going to claim that uh, they're going to want to delay. We see this in the 1-800-Flowers case where they're making an acquisition uh, from Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, there's the Borg Warner case where they're claiming because of the drawdown of the uh, credit lines that that's a, a breach of the interim operating covenant. So we'll see situations like that. But uh, by and large, I think uh, most deals uh, that have been signed and announced will, in fact, uh, uh, close, uh, albeit uh, a little bit more slowly. And speaking of just sort of the, 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 the liquidity issue that you mentioned, the other category of deals that you've spoken about quite a bit over the last couple of weeks is the role of what you had termed more liquidity-driven deals, uh, both as a matter of the, you know, what, what might kind of create more deal flow in terms of the pipeline and also just an overall rationale for people to be doing deals in the near term. Just bringing us up to date, what are you seeing in terms of the pipeline and prospects for companies doing more of these liquidity-driven deals, such as selling single assets, potentially even selling themselves in a distressed situation? What are you, what are you seeing on that end of the market? I think there's going to there's a whole range of I think liquidity-driven deals, which is a term that uh, I've used a lot, 
is something that uh, we are going to see a, a fair bit of, and it, it really is a very broad category. It, it's everything from a company selling an asset that it you know, really doesn't need or is uh, a non-core asset or a non-core business to generate uh, cash. It's uh, selling a business that is capital intensive that uh, they may not have the capital going forward to invest in that business, so they sell the business. It may be selling themselves rather than facing uh, Chapter 11 in the near future. It uh, is any transaction, uh, the way I would define it is any transaction that a company would engage in that they would not otherwise have engaged in because that uh, they need to, that they're short on liquidity or that they need to uh, raise cash. You know, and, and I think, you know, the, the, it may not be purely liquidity driven, but I do think that what happens in times like these where boards and management really focus very closely on their businesses and, uh, you know, uh, I spend a lot of my time, uh, you know, on, on virtual board meetings these days, and you really sort of see boards and management talking about their business in a way they don't in, in, in normal times. And you, you can see coming out of this, and I've seen this uh, really twice in the past, you know, after 9-11 and then after uh, – uh, uh, the financial crisis, boards and management saying, you know what, this business really is not our priority, or management really doesn't have the bandwidth to focus on this business, and th or this is the business that, that really drives us, so let's focus on that and let's dispose of these other businesses. So I, I think that w while certain uh, divestitures might not be purely liquidity driven, they will come out of a greater focus that comes out of the decision making that uh, companies have to make during this period. Frank, just continuing down this path on these on, on the liquidity driven deals, it would be, I think a lot of people are looking at what's going on right now at some of the industries that have really uh, taken it hard over the past couple of weeks, such as retail, hospitality, and travel sectors, uh, all of which are, you know, looking at what they're going to do. What advice are you giving companies at this point around how they should be thinking about liquidity issues in the context of whether or not they're going to be taking stimulus money uh, from the package that was passed the other week? Yeah, obviously, questions like that depend really on the facts and the circumstances of the particular company and what their alternatives are. And to a certain extent, uh, you know, companies in, in retail are by and large, you know, they're not buying back their stock. They're not uh, going to be uh, doing dividends. And so uh, for them, uh, some of the restrictions that uh, they might find in the stimulus package really aren't, uh, you know, onerous uh, restrictions. So in, in many ways, the, uh, the, you know, the, the money that's available to them 
uh, you know, might be the best uh, alternative. But, you know, like any situation, you try to find what's the best uh, uh, mix. Uh, you know, there's also uh, funds out there that are uh, looking to uh, make investments, obviously, at, uh, you know, higher returns uh, that, uh, you know, might be long-term money. So there, there's, there's a lot of alternatives. Uh, I, I don't think uh, that there's a, a lack of uh, capital. Uh, you know, unlike uh, 2008 and 2009, where uh, the, the problem was a, a shortage of uh, capital, I don't think that's really, uh, you know, the problem right now. I, I think the problem is more of no one knowing uh, – when the economy is going to get reopened, and even when it gets reopened, is it fully reopened? And you know, how long is it uh, going to be? You know, sort of in a uh, semi-shutdown stage. And I think that's really the biggest challenge for uh, retail, hospitality, and travel. If you look at something like the uh, the restaurant business, you know, you can see restaurants being reopened. But, you know, if they're restricted to so many people per restaurant or, uh, you know, so many feet apart, uh, it, it's kind of hard to be, uh, I was going to say profitable, it's kind of hard to, you know, even break even with those sorts of restrictions. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of challenges for uh, those sectors. And uh, so until we have a better sense of, uh, where this is all going, uh, those sectors which are, you know, already challenged. And, uh, you know, even though, the let's say, the airline industry, which has been doing well the last couple of years, historically, the airline industry has been very difficult in terms of uh, its ability to uh, earn a profit, um, you know, and it's, you know, sort of back in the same situation at the moment. And just while we're while we're on the topic of specific sectors, um, one of the interesting ones that I, I, I think a lot of folks, both on the phone and in our business, are are, are looking at or beginning to hear a bit about are uh, potential things uh, swirling around in the healthcare space, uh, given the need for very fast R and D and people looking for potential vaccines and such for the for, for the virus. Generally, do you think that this ends up being a catalyst, even in the near term, for the healthcare sector and pharma and biotech? Well, you know, healthcare and biotech uh, are, uh, you know, sectors which uh, seem to have perpetual growth and seem to uh, grow uh, despite the economy. Uh, I think we all know uh, that, you know, in the midst of uh, uh, the uh, uh, financial crisis, uh, when there was very little uh, M&A activity in the first quarter of uh, 2009, both uh, Merck and Pfizer did, you know, roughly $50 billion uh, uh, transaction. So, you know, it, it's sort of counter-cyclical. Uh, to a certain extent, I think the deals that will get done in healthcare, and I think there will get there will be deals that get done in healthcare over the course of the next year or so, uh, probably won't be directly related to uh, uh, you know COVID-19. But um, I think one of the questions that governments 
and regulators will be looking to with respect to uh, healthcare deals is what does this do for preparedness and uh, will uh, you know this enhance preparedness or not for future transactions and you know it's it's hard to really uh, test that uh, but I think that you know that is a, a potentially a factor that you know may uh, come into uh, play with respect to uh, all transactions I and mean, we've seen a bit of a uh, a creep uh, as uh, you know, CFIUS has been uh, expanded over the last couple of years, and uh, other countries have enacted similar sorts of uh, national security type uh, uh, regulatory regimes, and uh, we may find that uh, uh, health and safety becomes part of the equation in terms of uh, how uh, governments uh, look at uh, acquisitions. And, uh, you know, that may put a damper on uh, some cross-border transactions. You know, I think it's too early to tell exactly how governments will uh, uh, look at deals and, and how they will regulate deals. But uh, certainly it's something I think we have to think about, and uh, I would not be shocked to see uh, uh, governments uh, you know, put regulations in place uh, that uh, you know, look at those type of health and safety factors. I, I want to turn the conversation a bit more to the governance and activism side around what we're seeing out there. Frank, if we sort of turn this a bit and look at this whole environment through the activism lens, um, there was an interesting piece that came out, uh, I guess, the other week that uh, talked about the term anti-coronavirus pills, uh, which, of course, is in reference to poison pills. And the numbers from Activist Insight, which we have from Friday, is that in 2020, there have been 23 pills disclosed including 17 in the month of March alone. And for all of 2019, there were 18 disclosed. And so uh, clearly companies are getting, you know, a lot more aggressively preemptive uh, with, 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 uh, with respect to what they think might be on the horizon from a defense standpoint. Just want to get your thoughts on, you know, what are you seeing on this, uh, on this poison pill front? And do you think that we're going to end up drawing more fire from activists in the 2021 proxy season because of what's being put in place now? Well, I, I think you're seeing the pills being put in place because of activist activity. It, it's sort of a bit of a vicious cycle. My sense is, and, and just let's talk about 2019 for a moment. 2019, you, you know, essentially saw the market go up and the, 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 the stock market go up and uh, share prices go up uh, during the course of the year. Obviously, there were points when it was down, but by and large, uh, the market was up. And so as a consequence of that, uh, most companies didn't need to worry uh, all that much about activist activity or you know, hostile bids and things of that sort. That quickly changed in uh, 
in in March when the stock market went down, you know, uh, very significantly. I look at you know in advising companies and advising boards. I look at uh, two things. One is the share price, and you know that's something which gets reported on. Uh, uh, and, and everybody looks at and it's easy to look at. But I also look at what is the volume and what is the volume as compared to the normal volume. And I think, you know, what we saw, and, and this is true of a lot of companies, is, uh, you know, uh, extremely high volume. So you had uh, extremely high volume coupled with a very rapid drop in share price, and so that makes you uh, uh, vulnerable to activist activity. And I think where companies knew that there was this potential uh, risk, and not just a theoretical risk, but uh, you know a, a, a real risk, uh, they were quick to uh, uh, put something in uh, in place, and. Uh, I think that's really uh, uh, what we uh, what we saw there. And uh, will we see more pills? Yes. Um, will we see less in April than we uh, uh, saw in uh, in March? I suspect so. Uh, but uh, as we see activist campaigns, uh, you know, I think you'll see. Uh, uh, companies responding with an arsenal of different things, depending on the situation. And, and one of the things they will, uh, look to is, uh, is poison pills. Uh, poison pills are much more effective for a hostile bidder than they are for an activist. But, uh, you know, they, they do have some relevance with respect to, you know, activists. The other thing is if you have net operating you know, rights plans can be used as well to uh, protect those net operating uh, losses. Uh, so I think some of those pills were put in place for that reason as well. And then just, you know, I guess bringing this a bit together, the activism piece and the M&A piece, I, I know certainly, you know, something that we've seen a lot over the last couple of years, um, uh, certainly in our, in, in our practice, we've seen a lot of this is, just the preponderance of M&A related activism generally, and particularly situations where you've got activisms going into live M&A situations, either on the on the buy side and the sell side. Um, I guess one question for you is, with respect to that trend, if we sort of kind of extrapolate from roughly a third of the activist campaigns being M&A related over the last year and, and, and maybe more, depending on where, which numbers you look at, do you have a sense that for deals that may get struck even shortly after this or going out over the next six to 12 months, do you have a sense that we're going to continue to see that type of activism or will, will it perhaps tilt more to the sell side versus the buy side? Or what do you, where do you think the trend line is going to end up in terms of M&A related activism generally coming out of all this? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, over the weekend, I was checking in on a, uh, an, an old friend of mine, and uh, he, he's a uh, retired hedge fund guy, a bit of a legend, uh, you know, now in his uh, late 70s. And so I was sort of just, you know, calling to see how he was uh, doing in the midst of this. And we were talking about, you know, some of this stuff. 
And and he was saying that, you know, he thinks that there's actually going to be a, a lot less hedge fund activity coming out of this because hedge funds would go in and instigate for things like share buybacks and increased dividends and sale of the company and uh, things of that sort that he pointed out, you, you really can't uh, uh, push board to do and be sure that they're capable of doing that. So he, he actually, uh, from decades of experience and uh, being you know out of the game, so to speak, today, thought that uh, you know uh, th there would be, of course, particular instances where we would uh, uh, see uh, activists doing certain things. But he thought that by and large we would see a lot less than uh, uh, than people were were, were were thinking. And you know that's an interesting perspective. As I say, this is somebody who yeah was a bit of a legend, was around for a long time. And uh, someone I have a, a deep respect for, and uh, it usually has some uh, uh, very good uh, uh, insights. And uh, you know, so he, I think, he has a good perspective that uh, you know this may be a bit of a different environment uh, where hedge funds may need to simply make uh, some you know good fundamental bets as to which businesses are going to come back more quickly than others and, and, and be a little bit uh, patient with it as opposed to being able to uh, uh, be able to uh, make some things happen because we may be in a period where the types of things that they are able to make happen uh, are, are not, the boards are not capable of doing them. Yeah, in a way, it, it, it almost turns lots of different industries into financial services where they have to get permission to, to give to do dividends anyway. Right. And, you know, I, I think talking about financial services, it, it really was, I mean, in 2008, we saw a tremendous amount of transactions in the financial services sector. And, and that was really because government made those combinations happen because they had to happen. And then between 2009 and really early 2019, you really didn't see a lot of consolidation in the financial services sector. It was really a decade where there was very little consolidation there. And uh, it may very well be that in, in certain sectors, uh, you may see some consolidation right away because it needs to happen. And then you may see very little consolidation for some period thereafter. I don't think it's a decade because, you know, we're not talking about regulated industries by and large. But it, we may see that that sort of phenomena. Again, I'm not predicting that. I'm just uh, looking, you know, at what we saw previously and, and, and wondering if, if we see a bit of a repeat. But, again, I think the point that uh, he was making to me is, is 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 potentially a good one that you know activist activity may not be as prevalent we saw boards aren't going to be able to buy back their stock the way they did before or increase their dividends or uh, sell the company as easily as they uh, were six months ago interesting 
So look, just one final question, Frank, just to maybe tie all this together. Your, your role and perspective is a global one. And I guess the question is, obviously, this is the, the, the virus is at different points relative to the apex in different geographic markets. And I guess one question for you is, is there anything that you're seeing as you look at other geographic markets that are in perhaps different phases of the virus that you think may, may, may have particular implications for M&A either within those markets like Germany or Italy uh, or, or Asia or, or anything you see in the way of cross-border activity um, as you look at these other markets and see the fact that there's this different sort of schedule, so to speak, around when, when everybody will be emerging from the, from, from, from the virus impact over time. I know we have a lot of folks. We do have folks on the phone that are sort of covering this from, from you know, Europe and some other international markets. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, it's probably still a little early, even in in Asia, to see um, the green shoots, so to speak. But uh, I do know that uh, you know some of our colleagues in uh, Beijing and Hong Kong. Uh, or talking to clients uh, about transactions. And uh, I do think that uh, the transactions we're going to see initially are going to be around uh, companies uh, trying to fill holes. What I mean that is sort of coming out of this, you know, uh, where in their supply lines did they feel that they uh, uh, had a gap? So defensive type of transactions, what in their portfolio of businesses, uh, you know, were their businesses that they didn't need. So I think there'll be a, a little bit of realignment of businesses uh, coming out of this. Again, we saw that a little bit after 9-11. We saw that, uh, you know, after the financial crisis. So I think you'll see those type of uh, realignments, the liquidity deals, the driven deals that we were talking about before. And uh, I, I think we'll, uh, uh, you know, certainly see the uh, restructuring uh, uh, type of transactions that uh, uh, inevitably come out of any sort of uh, uh, market uh, turmoil. But one thing is, is pretty clear is that, you know, M&A is part of the uh, – corporate fabric, if you will, of, uh, you know, most big companies globally today. And uh, in the same way as uh, they, uh, you know, regularly need to uh, raise uh, uh, equity and raise debt, they similarly need to add to uh, uh, their, their business in, in one way or another and to realign their business. So I think M&A is not going to go away. What may go away a bit for uh, some time is some huge mega deals. I think if you're going to see huge mega deals, they're probably most likely in, in areas like uh, uh, healthcare uh, and, and maybe tech. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, we've seen um, the rise of uh, uh, Zoom and some other uh, technologies in the last couple of months. And it may very well be that 
know, certain uh, uh, tech companies uh, come together as a consequence of that to have a uh, better offering. But, uh, you know, we'll continue to see M&A. We might not have a 2018-2019 type of year. Uh, we're certainly not going to have it in the first half of 2020. Probably the second half won't make up for it. But M&A won't go away. Uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, those of us who are involved in uh, M&A will uh, need to retool a bit. And I think one of the things that uh, has kept me engaged in the M&A world for so long is that it is a bit of uh, you know, retooling and uh, adapting. And uh, I certainly had to adapt after the dot-com bubble burst and then again after 9-11 and again after the uh, financial crisis. And, you know, I see already the types of things I'm talking to clients about, working on with clients, you know, adapting uh, uh, yet again. And uh, I, I wish I was adapting when, uh, you know, fun things were happening. But, you know, I guess, uh, you know, you tend to uh, adapt to, to crises uh, more easily than uh, you do, uh, you know, positive things. But uh, that's, I think... Uh, uh, what the road ahead is, and uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, we will uh, uh, be stronger when we come out of this. Uh, uh, everybody thinks it was Kelly Clarkson, but it was actually Nietzsche who said, uh, what doesn't kill, kill us makes us stronger, and uh, uh, I think that this is a uh, very good example of that, and uh, uh, I think uh, M&A and uh, the capital markets will uh, uh, come out of this uh, stronger, uh, and uh, they'll be different. They'll be different. They'll be uh, more refined, but they'll be uh, uh, they'll they'll be stronger for sure. Well, listen, Frank. Thank you so much for spending the time to do this with us. This was really interesting, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your morning, uh, which I'm which I, which we know are still quite busy, even all that's going on. Uh, thanks, Cal. Great talking with you and you know, enjoy the rest of the day. That's all for now. Please be safe, stay healthy, and remain inside as much as possible. See you next time.